judge, counsel, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, readers, podcast listeners. We're here in courtroom 8B in Houston, Texas, where 25 years ago Alton Stone sat as a defendant in the case of United States versus Alton Stone. The courtroom has changed quite a bit since then. The wood paneling has been changed. It's a lot lighter. Computers, microphones. The courtroom has been brought into the 20th century. Today, I'm going to be representing Aladar. And to remind you of that, I'm going to place this blown up picture where my client would normally sit in the seat next to me. Today will be his day. He deserves it. The case is in a unique posture today. I only represent Aladar. I don't have a human client that I have to spin my story to make Lundy guilty or to exonerate Alton Stone. We just need to look at the truth, at the facts as they exist that you've heard and read and listened to, which spans 30 years. I think we can agree that neither the trial of Lundy nor the trial of Alton Stone really got to the facts of what happened to Aladar that fateful night on November 13th, 1990. The lawyers in those cases had different agendas. That is, to prove their client's case and to spin those facts in a way that was the best for their client. I'm not going to do that. We're going to look at the facts as you've heard them and read them over the last 30 years and try and make some logical truthful assumptions about what happened that night. How do you start to look at the evidence in this case? There's been an insurance investigation, an FBI investigation, two federal trials, and then my own investigation of over 25 witnesses. There are two competing, mutually exclusive theories of the case, both of which cannot be true as Christopher Goldsmith said in the Alton Stone case. First, let's look at the investigation done by the insurance company and the conclusions reached by the veterinarians. It seems like they went looking for an accident, and that's exactly what they found. It's very difficult to look at the factual evidence, that is, Dixon's reports to Lloyd's, and try to figure out how the accident actually happened. If you look at all of the evidence that's written, Dixon's reports, the report of Larry Bramlage, which doesn't say anything about how the accident happened, and the two reports by Baker and Rhodes, what we come to the conclusion of in writing is that Lloyd's paid their $36.5 million dollars and Golden Eagle paid their $5 million on the idea that Aladar simply kicked the door. Dixon's final report uh, about the accident simply says that it was assumed that Aladar was injured when he kicked his rear right hind leg into the stall door. He goes on to say that they had never seen him get his foot entangled. If you'll remember, when I interviewed Tom Dixon, he really was unable to say whether there was any damage to the stall door on the inside that he could relate to the accident. There's conflicting evidence even about whether the entanglement theory, where Aladar gets his leg caught in the door and ends up twisting it and falling down in order to break it. That theory 
when it came about and how it came about is very, very difficult to discern. As I said earlier, Dixon's report on paper and all of the supporting evidence from the doctors conclusively shows that the claim was paid because he just kicked the stall door. Later on, Dr. Bramlage does elaborate on what he meant when he said Aldar kicked through the door. But that wasn't until much later. We got to the trial, it sounded like the entanglement theory had been the theory from the start. So there's all that to contend with. And then there's the fact that before anyone talked to Lundy, and he first talked to Dixon, he said that someone had heard a sound coming from the stallion barn, and when they went to investigate, they found Aladar with his broken leg. That statement then gets retracted. You can see it in his reports. In court, and pressed about it, he admitted that he wrote those notes at the time that the, he was talking to Lundy and that his report best reflects what he remembered at that time, which is that the sound was heard and somebody investigated. What's interesting about that is it's implied in the sentence when he says the stallion barn is right next to the office that there was somebody in the office that heard this. There's a lot of conflicting testimony, but I think the conclusion has to be The story that Aladar kicked the door with his right hind leg was the story which Lloyds paid the claim on. Dr. Baker testified in Alton Stone's trial that Aladar had entangled his leg, but it came out on cross-examination that he had never told the grand jury that. And so now there's this discrepancy. And when I followed up on that with Dr. Bramlage and asked him, well, how come Dr. Baker didn't know your theory when he testified to the grand jury? And and Bramlage said, well, maybe he didn't believe it, which gets back to the idea that all these theories about how it happened were just that theories. At the point when this was investigated, nobody knew Calumet's true financial condition. Nobody knew the circumstances surrounding which Cowboy Kip was told to take the night off. There was a lot that was not known to the insurance investigators that would later become known that would change the overall picture of this story. On the other side of the equation, you have the horseman that I interviewed. Uh, Carol Flake implied it in her article of Connoisseur Magazine, and the FBI started their investigation. Rob Foster concluded that J.T. Lundy did it, or hired or knew who did. And how did they come to that conclusion? It's very simple. When you have a case where the facts uncovered show that a week before Ali Dar was going to get injured, management told the night watchman to take the night off. Then you've got the story that someone was had heard Aladar got hurt and went out to investigate. That's Lundy's first story. And then you have the Maintenance man, Stanley Broughton, coming in and fixing the bolts the morning of, not saving the bolts, keeping Terry McVeigh, who had a $5 million policy that he was representing, out of the Calumet property until after the bolts were fixed. So you've got all those facts pointing to Calumet management being involved. And then on top of that, you have all of the financial issues that Calumet became involved in right around the time of Aladar's injury. We know that Calumet had been struggling long before Aladar was hurt. But the weeks before November 13th, 1990 become interesting because in October of 1990, 
uh, the Commonwealth of Kentucky files a tax lien against Calumet for over $4 million. On October 25th, the bank restructures their loan so that Calumet will owe $50 million approximately, and it'll be due on February 28th, where the bank will be able to take over the farm by default. Then, on October 31st, Calumet defaults on a loan of $6,500,000 on a horse named Magambo that they bought from White Birch Farm, and they owed a principal payment of a million three. Lundy agrees with White Birch Farm that he'll pay them next year in March, but he makes no interest payment on that loan. In the weeks before Aladar died, Golden Eagle Insurance Company writes Calumet a letter and says, look, we're not going to renew our $5 million policy on Aladar. And as a result, it's going to expire in December 1990. So if the full amount of what Aladar is insured for is to be received, it has to be done before December 1990 when Golden Eagle's policy will not be renewed. So we have all these factors coming to a head right around November 13, 1990 when Aladar is injured. So I think the insurance company paying their $41.5 million gave the impression to the public that Aldar had simply kicked his, the stall door with his right hind leg. It was properly investigated, and with so much money being spent, that was the end of it. But there was so much in the insurance investigation that wasn't done or was not known. So Tom Dixon, for example, did not know about the substitution of Alton Stone for Cowboy Kip when he did his investigation. He didn't know the bolts were fixed the next day. He didn't know the financial condition of Calumet. He didn't know the bolts were corroded. Terry McVeigh knew more, but it seemed like the insurance companies were more interested in paying the claim to a big farm and advertising the fact that they would do so quickly in order to support their reputation in the insurance industry. What we now know is that because so much was not known and so little investigation was done by the insurance companies, that there were a lot of questions left unanswered. And so it took Calumet declaring bankruptcy and all of these financial records to become available for people to understand the financial aspects of Calumet. But it also took the bank that Calumet borrowed money from being taken over by the FDIC, which triggered an FBI investigation. Now all the people involved, grooms, are all being investigated by an FBI investigation. And when Alton Stone's trial occurs, all of these new facts start to come out. And unfortunately for Alton Stone, it's his freedom that is at stake in the trial of United States versus Alton Stone. You've heard all about him. You've heard all the different stories he gave. He was guilty of giving many different inconsistent statements to the FBI. But he was arrested mostly because they hoped that he could finger J.T. Lundy or someone on the farm who did know what happened or did participate. Unfortunately, he didn't know anything. And the FBI never proved that he obtained any financial gain from the death of Aladar. After he was convicted, you have to wonder, what price victory? But in Alton Stone's trial, there was a witness named Keith Hiley who, for the prosecution, gave them ammunition to say that Alton had done something. Keith Hiley said, under oath, he found Aladar. 
the office lights were on, which implies that someone in the office was there. And if you go back to Lundy's first story where he says someone heard something and went out to investigate and that the stallion barn is connected to the office, it implied that management was involved. So looking at the totality of the evidence of the insurance investigation, the FBI investigation, and the two trials, what conclusion can you come to? I think the evidence is overwhelming that Aladar's injury was intentional. There was a complete lack of physical evidence that any injury to Aladar was traceable to physical evidence on the door or the cement blocks surrounding the door. Not chipped paint, not gouges, disturbed hay, or a broken latch. Bramlage admitted he didn't look for anything in Aladar's hoof, whether it be wood or any other substance. There is just no evidence of a kick that would break a cannon bone on that door or its surrounding hardware or the cement blocks, period. Look at the photo for yourself and remember that all the horsemen that I talked to said that those marks were not related to rear foot kicking and that all those doors were installed back when the barn was first built. If there was evidence of gouging or missing paint or anything like that, it would have been Tom Dixon's duty to take pictures of it and and preserve that evidence. And yet there are none. And when he's asked, well, where's the evidence? He says, I can't say. There is some conflict about whether there were marks on the door. Susan McGee said she saw some. Sandy Hatfield said she may have seen some. Neither one of them said that whatever they saw was related to this incident. And Michael Coulter said he was there the day before and the day after, and there were no marks on the door that were related to the incident. And so the preponderance of the evidence is that there were no marks that you could relate to the injury that Aladar sustained. I think there's also overwhelming evidence that Calumet was involved. We only have to look at the person who pulled Cowboy Kip over a week before the accident and told him to take the night off. He was in the, the Calumet Crown Vic. Is it believable that someone would get the keys to the Crown Vic, be allowed to drive it, and go out to talk to Cowboy Kip without Calumet management knowing. Is that believable to you? Secondly, you've got J.T. Lundy telling Stanley Broughton that morning at 9 o'clock, fix that bracket now. How could Calumet not know that they needed to secure the scene and keep the evidence? They'd had prior claims. This wasn't some fender bender. This was a $41.5 million claim. The third reason that Calumet must be involved is that they keep Terry McVeigh out. He's got a $5 million policy. They won't let him in. And by the time they do let him in, the bracket and the bolts are reinstalled. The stall is pristine. There's nothing for him to take a picture of. With these three issues, I think it's clear management was involved. If you think Aladar's injury was a result of an accident, you'd have to believe that it was coincidental that Calumet received a letter that Golden Eagle was going to cancel their insurance in December of 1990. You'd have to think it was a coincidence that Cowboy Kip was told to take the night off the very night that Aladar was injured. You'd have to think it was a complete coincidence that Calumet instructed Stanley Broughton to take out the bolts and not save them. And you'd have to think it was a complete coincidence that Terry McVeigh was not let in until the stall was put back in a perfect condition. The only logical conclusion is that Calumet was involved and that they knew 
about the injury before it happened. How do you decide how the accident happened and whether it was intentional or whether it was accidental? If you want to believe Bramlage, Baker, and Rhodes that it was accidental, then you have to believe that this accident happened with no physical markings, scuff marks, or anything else. Can you believe that? Can you believe that Aladar, a 1,500-pound horse, could kick out with his rear feet in the configuration that this stall is to the left side of the stall door and not make a mark? Cannonbone can withstand 7,000 pounds of pressure. It's a weight-bearing bone when they're racing. The only way that can happen is if he twists it, and that's what Bramlage, Rhodes, and Baker came up with, although Baker didn't remember it when he was testifying to the grand jury. If you accept the lack of physical evidence rules out an accident, then you have to come to the point of exploring how an intentional injury could happen. The first thing you have to do is look at Dr. Pratt's testimony because he was the only expert that the prosecution called to testify that the accident was intentional. And it's unfortunate because Dr. Pratt's testimony was taken in Lundy's sentencing hearing in his bank fraud case. And they were crushed for time. They didn't have enough time to present their case. But Dr. Pratt's testimony really raised more questions than it answered. There were parts of it that were good for the prosecution and other parts that you thought, I don't know if that makes sense. So, for example, Pratt's idea of how Aladar broke his leg was that somebody tied a rope to his leg, threaded it through the stallion barn door, and then hooked it to a piece of uh, farm machinery and pulled it. There was no evidence of farm machinery in that barn. There were no marks of a farm machinery in that barn. Nobody saw farm machinery in that barn. Uh, It could be done that way, but based on the evidence that we have in this case, I think that's highly unlikely. The second thing he testified to was that the bolts that were in the floor were not the same bolts as we saw in Dixon's pictures. And as a result of that opinion, someone would have had to have taken up the original bracket and put a throwdown bracket there. And the judge was pretty incredulous about that. And he said, well, where did it come from? And Pratt said, I don't know. So I don't think either of those ideas are logical. He had two things, though, that were interesting. One was when he looked at the stall door, he felt that the lip of the bolts were sheared from the outside in. If Aladar had kicked the door, he would have kicked it and sheared the bolts from the inside out. So that pretty much negates the idea that Aladar would have kicked the door because the bolts don't match that. I think the most logical explanation about the bolts is the fact that when Stanley Broughton replaced them, he had to saw off the tops of those bolts that were pre-existing in order to put the new bolts in and have the bolts screw down on a level surface. The main reason they called Pratt was to, to show that a stallion would not have enough force in his leg to kick a stall door to shear off the bolts. The problem with that testimony was the bolts were eroded, as testified to by Stanley Broughton, and the prosecution never followed up on a hypothetical which would have asked, well, how much force would there need to be if the bolts were corroded? He was asked that on cross-examination, and he said, well, it would be less. But they never tied that down to any number or to the case. Ultimately, his testimony was not very useful. 
The second theory for intentionality came from John Ward, who basically said that someone could come in and pin his hoof in the opening and closing of the door, pinch it in the closing, and hold it there for five or ten minutes while the horse struggled and then fell down and broke it, which is, incidentally, pretty much the same theory that Dr. Bramlage has, only it was on the opposite side of the stall door. I think that's as believable as any other theory. But the problem is that I don't think that you have the time to wait around five or ten minutes because you never know when Alton Stone's coming back. I think the fact that it would take that long, you'd have to rule that out because whoever did this would be in a hurry to get in and out. So we're left with Tommy Burns' testimony. Someone coming in and uh, using a crowbar or baseball bat, doing the job quickly and then getting out. And while Dr. Bramlage is adamant that the x-rays and the injuries show it could never have been done by a crowbar, Dr. Stover, who I uh, consulted with, said that you cannot rule out the manner in which this broken cannon bone occurred by looking at the x-ray. It could have been a crowbar or baseball bat. It could not have been a crowbar or baseball bat. And even Dr. Rhodes in her testimony said, well, you know, fractures are not 100% accurate when you're trying to predict how an injury happened. It's interesting that Dr. Bramlage originally said that Dr. Stover was a qualified, but as soon as her opinion conflicted with his, he immediately started criticizing her, saying that she couldn't reach an opinion without a thousand data points. Nobody wants to go back and revisit this case. Even Lloyd's, when asked, said, no, no, we don't want to go back and revisit this case. And nobody wants to admit that they made a mistake. The totality of the evidence is that This was an intentional injury, and when you take all the facts of the case, you can come to no other conclusion. That's the easy part. When you look at the non-renewal of coverage, Kip being told to take the night off, the bolts being repaired, McVeigh being kept out until the stalls repaired and the bolts thrown out, the complexity of how the incident was reported in the doctor's reports, the evolution of the kick to the stall door becoming the entanglement theory, I think all that points to an intentional act. But now we get to the hard part because the question is, knowing all the facts that we know that at this point point to intentionality, how do we decide who did it? Not the why. I think the why isn't the easier question than the who. The why is money. How is Calumet, who has absolutely no cash and no money, how are they going to pay the bank the money that they owe, the, the, the 40 or 50 million that they owe them within a time period before December, before the $5 million policy gets non-renewed? All you have to do, as Kathy Lundy Jones said, is follow the money. When I got into this, I think everybody who had ever followed this case and the FBI believe that J.T. Lundy did it or had it done. But I'm not so sure that that's true. When you look at the payments, $20.5 million of Lloyd's policy and $5 million of Golden Eagle's policy all went directly to First City National Bank of Houston. Calumet only received $1 million. And so it seems unlikely to me that J.T. Lundy would instigate the killing of Aladar just for a million dollars. So what evidence is there that J.T. Lundy was involved in the actual decision or the actual killing of Aladar? There are really only two pieces of evidence. One is 
was declared inadmissible in the trial of Alton Stone. And that was that Marcia Matthews, who was Gary Matthews' husband, Gary Matthews was the CFO of Calumet, had had Lundy over for dinner, and he had said in front of her, there are ways to get rid of that horse. And after the horse died, Marcia Matthews wondered, "Mm, this is a strange statement, and it's strange that Aladar died right after that. But the judge wouldn't let that into evidence and because it was hearsay, and it was clearly hearsay, correct legal decision. And you're, you're left to wonder, was he joking? Was it, were they drunk? You just don't know. And of course, it never came into evidence. The second and more powerful testimony that came about Lundy being involved came from Carol Flake, who wrote an article in Connoisseur Magazine and was the first article to say that Aladar was worth more dead than alive, and further that kicking the, the stall door probably was not the way that the injury happened. And it was in that interview that Bramlage brought up the entanglement theory. So the key to her testimony, though, as it relates to J.T. Lundy, is that Alton Stone, who was the night watchman, said, quote, Lundy knew something was going to happen to the horse, and that's why he took the security off, end quote. That implied Lundy had had knowledge of and had and knew that Aladar would be injured, and in order to have that happen, he had to take the security off. The problem is it's a very ambiguous statement, and when I asked the FBI agent about it, he said it really wasn't something that you could rely on because it was what Carol Flake said, Stone said. It was a general statement. We don't know whether taking the security off meant having Cowboy Kip take the night off or whether it meant, in general, Calumet failing to have a person sit in the stallion barn with the $100 million worth of horses that were in there. When you take that testimony and that am, that that ambiguous statement, it's not clear. Calumet only got $1 million that that farm depended on Aladar for everything, for all the income. And First City got $25 million out of the payment. So doesn't the bank have more of a motive in having Aladar killed than J.T. Lundy and Calumet? That's the question you have to answer. And they, the bank, and J.T. Lundy and the CFO were the only people that truly knew that Calumet was, in fact, in debt for $120 million. So you're sitting there in November of 90, and you're looking at this, your first city national bank, and you're saying, well, we're owed $50 million, around $50 million, and there's another $70 million out there that's owed to other people. If this bankruptcy gets declared, we're going we're gonna to get 50 cents on the dollar. And so by having Aladar killed and by doing it before Golden Eagle's policy is not renewed, they get the full amount of the insurance, they get half their debt paid, and most importantly, they get in front of all the other creditors that are going to file in bankruptcy. To look further into that, you have to look at the relationship between Calumet and the bank and Chiak. Chiak basically was Calumet's inside man at the bank. He was the one who got all their loans approved, even though they shouldn't have been, because they had a bad balance sheet. He was the, he was in control of all the information, and he was the one who got Lundy to do things because they needed to keep him as the inside man that were really not to Lundy's benefit. So they created a tax break for Chiak. They gave Chiak uh, breeding rights. They, the most absurd was they, they, made, they had Lundy take out a 
$5 million loan called the Coco Art Loan that never benefited Lundy so that Chiak would be able to not have to pay off a debt related to that loan. I talked to Chiak on the telephone and he was very evasive. But one thing he said that was interesting was, I only did what was in the best interest of the bank. And what was in the best interest of the bank when they were owed 50 million? Calumet had no cash flow, no money, and their only asset was Aladar, who was insured for $41.5 million. And there was a $120 million in debt, and they'd have to get behind all these other creditors in bankruptcy. What would be in the best interest of the bank? But Lundy's not off the hook because he had to go along with this. He had to be involved in knowing that Cowboy Kip was told to take the night off and had to be involved in instructing Stanley Broughton to go fix the bracket that morning and not let McVeigh in to see the stall. Lester Munson, who was working with Bill Knack on a Sports Illustrated article, he went out and visited Chiak in prison. He was there all day, knowing that the bank was, as Lester put it, up to their neck in it. He got nothing out of him, but what we do know is that Frank Chiak was an experienced fraudster. He had been convicted in two previous cases of looting First City National Bank and being convicted of it twice. We have the statement of his sister who said that he should write a book. And Lundy's response to her was, well, as long as Cindy's alive and my children, I don't know. I don't want to make them upset about things or something. To me, that's an admission that he was involved. While we know Tommy Burns did not kill Aladar for the insurance money, as he said, there's always a guy around that you can call to have this done. And people in the horse business know who that is. What we've talked about here doesn't reach the level of criminal culpability. I'm not even sure it reaches the level of a preponderance of the evidence. But I think it's logical. Lundy and Chiak acted in concert and that Chiak was the instigating factor. So here we are at the end of the case. It's been 30 years an insurance investigation, two federal trials, and my interviews with over 25 witnesses. You've heard it all. You've heard probably more (laughs) repetition of the facts than you needed to, but as a lawyer, you're always pressed to present all the facts, even if they are repetitive, which I've tried to minimize, but it goes along with how this case is presented. You probably knew from the start that Aladar's story was going to be a tragedy. But I prefer to look at it in an uplifting way. That now his story is known. Now his courage and determination can be seen by everyone in this book and podcast. I loved hearing all the people talk about him and their love for him. John Veach, Paul Pryor. Charlie Rose, all these people, just listening to them talk, you could tell the depth of their love for this wonderful horse. Aladar did everything that he was asked to do during his racing career. And I'm happy that we all have had the opportunity to share Aladar's story together. As you heard from Steve Cawthon, one of the things that Aladar was famous for was never giving up. You know, he never gave up in the Kentucky Derby when he fell 17 length back. He never gave up in the Preakness. He never gave up in the Belmont. And this story may be something like, though we don't have all the answers we would like, I have tried as 
hard as I can to get all of the facts that could possibly be known at this time and present them to you. I'm hopeful that somebody will come forward with more information. But if not, I'm happy with what we've done. I'm happy with how much we've been able to find out about Aladar personally and about his case. I've carried the weight of this case since 2018. It's been on my shoulders. Always worried if there was something more to do. Worried if I'd done enough. Pursued every possible lead. Now it's time for me to give that responsibility to you. You have access to a verdict form. It's on my website, fredmcray.com. Go there. Click on verdict form. Enter the code Alidar Calumet. That's capital A and capital C. And you'll be able to access that verdict form and give your opinion about what the facts of this case show. I hope that you can participate in a way that's meaningful for you and for this case. I got a letter from someone about the book. It said, I never heard of Aladar before your book, but now he'll be in my heart forever. And I hope as a result of this book, podcast, that you'll remember Aladar and he'll be in your heart forever.